Welcome to the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Hebrew Bible. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Others will sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Hebrew Bible, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to the Third Hour Podcast. We're glad to have you. You are listening to episode 43 of the Third Hour Podcast, Collapse. I'm your host, Taylor. Amanda. I'm Andrew. This week, we are covering 2 Kings chapter 14, all the way through, what is it, 23 or 24? 25. 25. The end. Don't worry, I did read that far. <laughs> the end of the book. Don't worry. And this brought Andrew up an and immediate, I will talk about it. This brought up an immediate question for me, even before the synopsis, just to, you know, break from tradition here. Is this the end of the Deuteronomist? Largely, yes. <laughs> largely doesn't I'm mean largely complete. relieved then. <laughs> I mean, we're... Yes. I'll just go with yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. But that's a lie. And we know it's a lie now. <laughs> you know, blindside me with the Deuteronomist again. Well, do you want to tell us what happens in this Deuteronomist almost finale? So we begin and end this section with a captivity. Um, our first several chapters are this king is overthrown by that king and Israel attacks Judah and loses. Eventually, Ahaz of Judah removes the altar from the temple and replaces it with the Assyrian model. At the same time, Hoshea, king of Israel, the other one, um, stops making tribute to Assyria. Assyria invades Israel and takes people captive and then settles Assyrians on Israel land. So Israel is no more. Meanwhile, Hezekiah, king of Judah, re-centralizes worship back into Jerusalem, but Assyria comes for them too. Hezekiah offers up all the gold and silver scrounged from the temple, literally scrounged and scraped off stuff, but that's not enough. An Assyrian messenger makes a big speech to the people about not letting Hezekiah deceive them into thinking the Lord will save them. Hezekiah calls for Isaiah, prays, and Isaiah says that God will protect the city. Then an angel kills the entire Assyrian camp in, like, a sentence, and the king of Assyria gets murdered by his sons. Hezekiah gets sick, and Isaiah tells him to prepare for death. Instead, Hezekiah prays and says God will give him 15 more years, which is just enough time for envoys from Babylon to come and for Isaiah to prophesy the captivity. Judah has two more wicked kings, and then Josiah. And magically, while Josiah is rebuilding the temple, the high priest Hilkiah finds the Book of Law in the temple. The priests double-check with Huldah, who is, according to my book, both a prophet and somebody's wife. Put a pin in that, coming back to that later. Um, and Huldah says that the book is accurate, including all the terrible things that are going to happen to Judah as punishment. Josiah reads the book aloud to the people, and they all covenant to keep it. Josiah tears down all the other temples and kills their priests, which is a very thorough listing of people and stuff and murder. Um, then they celebrate Passover. But it's not enough, and God says that, sure, Josiah is great, but he's going to still destroy Judah for its past wickedness. Josiah dies in battle against Pharaoh Necho. Necho puts Josiah's eldest in captivity, and then the second son rules as a puppet. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar swoop in and take over, capturing Jerusalem and take people into captivity again. Nebuchadnezzar puts the king's uncle on the throne as another puppet. The uncle rebels against Babylon. And Judah is crushed, the temple is burned, the walls are broken, and everyone who was left in Jerusalem in the first place gets dragged away unless they're super poor. Um, this includes Josiah's grandson, the son of that first puppet king. Impressions. This is a complicated passage. On every level. Yeah, on every level. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> We, nice. Uh, my impression is really shallow, but I was really happy to reach the point of like, hey, I recognize this name. I recognize this <laughs> name. Wait, I recognize that name too. It was kind of nice. I kind of gave away my impression at the beginning. I just really want to be done with the Deuteronomist. <laughs> I just, 
I like so I guess it does have tie into an actual impression from this text, which is just that one of the things that makes me excited to move beyond the Deuteronomist is they're they're not even convincing within their own worldview. I mean, they're trying to push this narrative where, you know, Judah is kind of quasi spared because they're a slightly better at worshiping Jehovah and not idols in Israel. But not really. But that's not compelling. And then, like, the heroes are never getting, like, that blessed. I mean, Josiah, who's supposed to, like, is the climax of the whole thing, right? I mean, the one who, quote unquote, finds the temple scroll. He gets killed by the Egyptians. Like I mean, I just their their willingness to turn a blind eye to even the problems, like even the problems that they're writing down about their own narrative. It's just it's really interesting to read, and I see that with like monotheism versus polytheism as well. I mean, you have just a few sentences apart, like a clearly polytheistic passage, yeah, followed by like a clearly monotheistic speech, and the way it's just stitched together. I don't know. I'm just it's really fascinating and I like seeing the fishers and trying to get a sense of the people who are trying to put it together. But I'm also, I feel like we've been with this particular school for so long that I'm, I'm also just getting a little bit tired of the same cracks and the same incredible capacity to ignore the cracks. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my impression. One thing that I think is fascinating about, this reading and the Deuteronomist as a whole is likely this is the dissenting opinion. Likely this is somebody who is not the mainstream chronicler of his day. Interesting. I think I could see that a little bit. And the reason I say that there's, there, there are some evidences for that. The, the fractious nature of the text is one Yeah, that whoever is writing this likely doesn't have access to the same quite as comprehensive um, and literate school of scribes and authors that other groups will before and after. Uh, now, is this the person who's writing just this chunk of Second Kings that we read, or like the whole of Second Lake? Probably the Deuteronomist in general okay. is a dissenting voice, but because it's what has survived. Um, that, so I'll, I'll put it this way. So when the Deuteronomist starts writing, probably the Deuteronomist is the dissenting opinion of, okay. of what Israel is, what Israel should become. And I'm speaking about Israel very broadly because we need to speak about Israel today as a concept, mm -hmm. not just as a kingdom, right. but as this concept, because this is where, so this passage, second Kings 17 is where we get the entire notion of 10 lost tribes, which tons of religions, hundreds of religions have used as the basis for their becoming Israel project, including Mormonism, mm -hmm. right? But not just at Mormonism. Like if you look throughout the Middle Ages, tons of religions do this. The Christian project in part does this. Uh, Beta Israel does this. So there are all the, the modern Samaritans are doing this. Modern Judaism is doing this. All of these groups are taking this section and using it as a major keystone in what they conceive of as their project of becoming Israel. Because Israel is scattered. And to bring it back, what does that mean? There's clearly a diaspora. Well, maybe we're part of the diaspora mm -hmm. because here's this connection. So hundreds of churches have done this Jewish, Christian, even Islam have had opinions on this. And so we kind of have to talk about Israel. Well, whoever the Deuteronomist is, likely that Deuteronomist had a very particular view on what Israel should be and therefore what Israel was. Okay. And we'll talk more about that, especially once we get to 17. There's really no way to avoid it if we want to be take this text seriously. But whoever the Deuteronomist is, they are probably the dissenting opinion. And one of the reasons that the dissenting opinion is because they present such clearly contradicting evidence for their perspective. So that God will let them reign forever, contingent on righteousness, but then they get the righteous king and all it does is delay it a little bit. Yeah. I, that's, 
that's an unserious argument. This notion that the, the kingdom of Israel is totally destroyed and the numbers that we're going to get for that don't match up with the evidence in the text. What the destruction of Judah is doesn't work within the text. None of these things really work. So likely what it is, is that whoever the Deuteronomist is, they are the revisionist historian of their day. And, and, you're, and, and the evidence for that, when you talk about this, the, the way it's broken up is, if I'm under, tell me if I'm understanding this right, that as a revisionist historian, they would have been sort of exiled from opportunities to have access to the full text, to have access to the full learning of the day. And so they're basically working mm-hmm. with limited resources because the main voice doesn't want to give them the resources. Am I getting that right? That, that can be one reason. Another could be that if this is being written in the Persian period, so at, so just to restate the timeline for everyone, so we have Thank you. the unified monarchy, right? And then we have two monarchies, Israel and Judah. Yeah. Israel is wiped out by Assyria, and then Judah is wiped out by Babylon. Well, about one century later, Babylon is destroyed by Persia. And Persia ostensibly allows these people to return to their homeland to rebuild their temple and be a vassal of Persia. And this ends up being a pretty good deal, except that whoever is being sent back by Persia, by Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, anytime that you see someone referred to as a Messiah in Isaiah, that's referring to Cyrus, because he very tangibly is redeeming them from captivity and sending them back to their homeland. Well, the people who are going to be their local governors are Persians. The people who control the religious apparatus are Persians. The, the people who control the temples, where the, the, the schools where we actually are doing the work of taking scrolls and creating a new history are Persians. So even if the Deuteronomist had been previously writing, which we've discussed. And we, I think we get some glimpse of that here with like the Josiah story, right? That we see that something is going on with Josiah. First of all, he starts reigning when he's eight. We talked about this a, a week or two ago. I don't remember when, that if you see a king be put on the throne when yeah. he is eight, that means he's a puppet king. <laughs> and we looked at some hard evidence for that in the past. We're going to see some for this one too. But So what does Josiah do is he goes, oh, well, our kingdom means this, and this is why we're better than Israel to the north, and we're going to follow these rules. So we get the sense that the Deuteronomistic school begins writing in earnest then, and is probably already sort of the underdog, because bookending Josiah to either side are kings who don't agree with him. And all we get in the text are judgments passed on those kings. In some cases, we don't even get reasons why those kings are considered bad. Sometimes they just say, this king did wicked in the sight of the Lord. Yeah. And it won't even bother to elaborate. So, But the Deuteronomist likely, that school or tradition, post-captivity in the Persian period, now only has access to surviving records that they are allowed access by Persia. And the history that they're going to write is going to be very nationalistic very anti-Northern Kingdom, very anti-Babylon, but pretty much silent on, say, Persia. Yeah. Silent on uh, certain issues of exogamy. Silent on issues that, you know what, as long as we're here, we have centralized worship. And where is that worship centralized? Well, it happens to be where Cyrus gave us to be our capital. It Mm. isn't Shechem. It isn't Mount Gerizim. It's Jerusalem. There's no reason to anticipate that Shechem or Mount Gerizim could not have been the center of this reconstituted kingdom. But Cyrus says, you get Jerusalem, so where is the center? Jerusalem. And their text reflects that. All of the people who are out living around them, no, you're all wrong. Everything must be Jerusalem. So likely this was the outside text. But in part because they're sponsored by the big neighbor, it becomes the dominant text over the coming centuries. So do you think Persia had an interest in, in what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Editing? I need more. Uh, do you think Persia had an interest in, in selling this text? I mean, did Persia, would Persia have been happy with the Deuteronomist or would this have been something the Deuteronomist was doing sort of underground? I think that the Deuteronomist views are largely in line with what the Persians would approve of. Yeah. 
Why? Well, they're not anti-Persia, oh, for okay. one thing. They're um, pro-Jerusalem, which is where they want them to be anyway. Yeah, they want a very centralized kingdom. They're kind of opposed to having a king. Mm-hmm. So very critical. They can, you kind of get the sense that, well, self-rule didn't really mm-hmm. work, did it? But vassalage, is that necessarily bad? Okay. So there's all these little clues that lead us toward this. Yeah, so, so jumping into the text, mm-hmm. the first few chapters before 17 are just kind of a mess. Multiple kings killing each other's servants, killing each other. Let's see, we've got Amaziah then Jehoash, then Azariah, then Jeroboam. This is one of the places where he's wicked, but things go pretty well for Jeroboam. Mm -hmm. Then another Azariah, who's leprous, and his son's in charge. And through this, we start to see Assyria poking in. So like in chapter 15, we have all these coups, and the king who emerges is a vassal to Assyria, pays tribute to the Assyrians. Yeah. So we're starting to see the Syrians poke in. That doesn't take very well. So also in 15, there's more unrest, which leads to Pekah being king. And that's immediately followed by Assyria capturing a whole bunch of Israelite territory. So ostensibly, I don't know, Pekah's not paying, not paying or not paying enough. I can't remember the details. Um, but Assyria ends up capturing a bunch of territory. And then we sort of shift back to Judah for a minute. Um, I don't know how much of this, do we want to go into detail on any of this? I mean, to me, I'm sure this is interesting if you really want to try to like track all the lines, <laughs> but um, is there anything you want to highlight? So I feel like we've kind of, we've had these two chapters on Israel. We're going to jump to Judah. And by the time we come back to Israel, it's going to be 17 when they get totally captured. So jumping into Judah um, in 15, the kings of Judah kind of have been following the same theme where they sort of do what's right, but they fail to remove the high places is a theme that comes up a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. And that's true of Jotham. Um, and Jotham, we know, we learn fights with Pekah in Israel. And Rezin, remind me where Rezin was, I'm forgetting now. Is that uh, Syria? 16. I'm trying to remember who Rezin was affiliated with. King of Aram. Yeah, Aram. Aram. But you if you if you want a touchstone that makes it so you kind of know where things are, Aram is also sometimes called Aram Damascus. Oh. That's useful. Also, your map is much better than my map. <laughs> is it? Yes. <laughs> then we get Aha Ahaz. Ahaz, how do you say that? Ahaz. Ahaz. None of the none of my guesses were right. <laughs> who makes an actual alliance with Assyria for Judah right before we get to Israel being lost. And you get this in 16, you get kind of a texture of the politics, right? Because Aram and Israel are trying to overthrow Ahaz. Yeah. And the reason is, is because Ahaz allied with Assyria. They want to create this coalition of, of disparate clans to stand against Assyria. So you, you find commentary all over the place. That's why this is happening. Cause sometimes you, it's hard to keep track of who's allied with who mm-hmm. uh, in this text. <clears throat> so then we get to chapter 17 and pretty quickly. We, well, we move through a few years of more wicked Kings. It says, and I think this is a good example of what you were talking about. Andrew, he was evil in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't really say anything more beyond that. Hosea becomes king, pays tribute, but the king of Assyria is not satisfied. He finds treachery, and so they invade the land, come to Samaria for three years, besieged it, and eventually Hosea is carried away captive, and so are the Israelites. And then, according to the text, the land is resettled by other conquered peoples um, later on. But first we get this sort of Deuteronomistic insert um, in chapter 17. Uh, the, uh, really 7 through 23 kind of explaining in their view why this happened. So one of the things that I was just really excited about tonight's episode for is I feel like as we get to Assyria and Babylon, these are huge empires that have left a lot of records behind, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're flying a little less blind now. Am I, am I right about that, Andrew, in terms of archaeology? 
as yes. we try to compare things here. Yes. And so I'm really intrigued to hear how, as we're flying less blind archaeologically, how does that or does that not line up with what the text has to say, especially about an event that we would expect to show up like this one? So so I think this is a good time for me to to explain something that's kind of exciting in my field. So there are two major um, intersections that, that happen here. And it's kind of a surprise that they did because you had, so um, you had biblical criticism where a little over a century ago, biblical criticism started reading this text a little more critically. And they arrived at the conclusion that this probably was not accurate. And that's when they started coming up with concepts like, well, this is the Deuteronomist, um, that this person has a particular axe to grind and so forth. And over, over the last century, that school of thought has only continued to develop. But that's the current state of biblical criticism is to look at this text and be very suspicious of everything it says to you. So for example, and um, this is a very important part of the Hebrew Bible, because this is where we get the last 10 tribes, which is going to be referenced all over the place. But one thing that biblical critics noticed is that out of the out of all of the different tribal lists that we've gotten, and we've looked at so many tribal lists, right? And I, depending on how you count them, there are around 24, 25. It depends how you count them. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes they appear in the same chapter or right next to each other. So what constitutes a list, yeah. right? <laughs> or if someone's speaking, is that a list? So it, it can get kind of fuzzy. But in general, around 24 tribal lists. Now, as we've discussed, no two of them are the same. Now, sometimes, and we've discussed this too, sometimes different tribes appear in them while other tribes Mm -hmm. are dropped. Sometimes they appear in different orders. But in no two cases are these tribal lists ever consistent. Now, biblical scholars were really curious, why is that? And it led them to suspect that this story, this very easy story from the perspective of the Deuteronomist, that the North was idolatrous and bad, so they got sacked for their punishments, and then and the you know ten tribes get carted away, and then the South, because it doesn't turn it around in the next century, they get sacked too. That's a very tidy narrative. But biblical scholars were like, well, maybe this is wrong. Uh, maybe we need to rethink who is writing this and what they're trying to say to us. And what is the truth behind the text? Okay, so that's the first thing that was going on. The second thing is about the same time, archaeology was starting to do some really exciting work, especially in the Near East. And one of the places where a lot of work was done was in the topic of Assyria. So we started to find all sorts of inscriptions and stelae and and pots, everything. Tablets that were letters that were written between people. And now much of the much of the information in these stelae actually corroborate certain broad strokes in here. For example, and this and this, of course, when this first comes out, this is very exciting for religious people and biblical enthusiasts, right? Here's some evidence that's tangible. It's in the ground. We can dig it up and look at it. For instance... At the first. At the first, <laughs> it's very exciting. Yeah, so at first... I, I <laughs> don't, don't ruin my twist. <laughs> it's been telegraphed. So we, we do learn about people like Tiglath-Pileser, okay? This, this king of Assyria who comes in and wants to conquer. We learn about Sargon. We learn about these kings. But here's the problem is once we start looking at those evidences a little more, what we realize is it's telling us an incredibly different story than what this is telling us. He's pointing at the Bible. I'm pointing at the Bible, what this text teaches us. Now, these two schools of thought then get together and they realize that they have independently one working from the text and one excavating in the dirt, that they have independently kind of proved the same thing, which is that whatever this narrative is saying about the lost 10 tribes and about people being carried away, that it's just shockingly inaccurate. It's an, it's a very simplified telling of a true event. So everyone agrees that in the year 722 BCE, there was a major invasion of the kingdom of Israel. And that certain things occurred, that over two major periods of deportations, some number of people were removed from the land. For example, we actually have 
uh, inscriptions celebrating the acts of some of these Assyrian kings in removing people from the land. And they give numbers as to how many people they deported. And the numbers are inflated. Well, here's the fun thing. Let's pretend that the numbers are accurate. Let's just pretend, okay? Because we've already established, right? We've talked about all these stelae about battles where they're like, oh, we killed everyone. We ate all the babies, you know, we <laughs> threw them in the sea. And of course, none of that's true because here are the modern, you know, here's Judah. They're right. still there, you <laughs> yeah. know? So clearly, you know, the Amorite <clears throat> dynasty was not eradicated at that time period. But here's the thing. These inscriptions say how many people were deported? 21 to 24,000. Let's pretend that that figure is true. Uh-huh. That's a rather low figure. In fact, if we take that with estimates from this region and place, that's only at most, at absolute most, about 20% of the population. And that's assuming that those figures are not inflated, inflated yeah. the way they have always been. For instance, one king in his inscription talks about that he took 21,000 people out of Israel and he did it with 50 chariots. Now, I don't know about you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you can, of course, have he's talking about his guard. Right. And you can have 50 chariots shepherd a great many people. I don't know about 21,000, but it seems like 50 is a verifiable number. I can easily see that people in his time period would be like, yeah, he had 50 chariots that he sent into Israel. That The hard to verify number is the 21,000. So likely that's the inflated one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So first of all, at most 20,000 people, give or take, were removed. At most 20% of the population, which raises a really hard question. In order for the 10 tribes to be scattered, who get scattered to make it count as scattering and who doesn't get scattered that makes it not count as scattering. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's our first problem. We're only getting warmed up. <laughs> Second in, in the next chapter, we're going to get to know uh, a really well-known uh, figure, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is really famous because you can actually go today and visit his tunnel in Jerusalem where from the inside and outside of Jerusalem, two teams of workers working independently dug a, tr- a tunnel through stone, through bedrock, and met exactly in the middle. And this is not just a straight tunnel. It kind of winds around. It's dark. It's damp because it is a well tunnel. It is meant to bring in water and potentially supplies in the case of a siege. And actually, if you go down into there, and you can go through there, and it's kind of a fun hike. You have to stoop, and you have a flashlight. There are inscriptions saying that this is the tunnel of Hezekiah. So when we find this tunnel, and it talks about, actually, in the, like, the last verse of chapter 18, where it finally, I think it's like at the very end of 18, or where is it? Imagine the tunnel? Yeah, it's actually at the end of 20. So right at the end of um, Hezekiah's life, in 2020, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah, all his power, how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? So here, one verse verified, and actually it's kind of the main thing we have remaining of Hezekiah is this masterful uh, waterwork that he built into the stone around Jerusalem. But Hezekiah did some other stuff. For instance, the second quarter he built which is another walled portion of Jerusalem. That's where Huldah lives. Hmm. So Huldah, it says, is from the second quarter. This raises an interesting question that we'll get to when we talk about Huldah. But the reason that Hezekiah needed to build a second quarter is because in this time period, according to records, the size of Jerusalem multiplied by five. Because of refugees coming from Israel. So that's kind of the second dimension that we have that, okay, well, so some people were deported. That's actually beyond question. Mm -hmm. Some people were deported. Yeah. The second question though is who, where are the tribes? Well, it seems like an enormous amount came South. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you have to come South? Well, you know, relatively friendly kingdom, you decide to come South, but here's the thing that still doesn't account for the vast majority of people there. Here's a third problem. It talks in 17 that Assyria settles people by shipping them into the kingdom of Israel. 
We have no evidence of that. None whatsoever. And mass migrations are actually one of the things that archaeological evidence almost always can find really good evidence for. Well, and the text even suggests that there should be some, because a lot of the text is about this sort of, they're worshiping, they bring the worship of their gods. And this is one of the clearly polytheistic parts where like, yeah, Jehovah gets mad because they're not worshiping the proper God of the land. And so they keep worshiping their gods, but they add worship of, I guess I should say Hashem, they yeah. add worship of Hashem and and Hashem is no longer angry and they stop getting eaten by lions. Yeah. yeah. But but that that implies that you would find a major archaeological shift because they the text is talking about the overlay of cultures which you would expect to be able to find archaeologically. Correct. And we don't find it. And not only do we not find mm-hmm. it, but in those same inscriptions from Assyrian kings boasting of their resettlement efforts, we find no evidence of them boasting of settling into Israel, only that they're taking some people out. So why wouldn't they boast of this other masterwork to their resettlement program? They boast of everything else. So that's, that's the third problem, is that we see no evidence of this two-directional shift. Here's the fourth problem. Oh, there's more. <laughs> and, this, and this one is a huge problem, and it's the Samaritans. The Samaritans as a group, what was the capital of the north? You might recall that at certain times it was Samaria, which is where the population Samaritan gets its name. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a big problem because Samaritan scripture dates back a very long time. And relatively recently, for example, we have had archaeological digs confirm that on Mount Gerizim that there are temple ruins that go as far back as the 5th century BCE, which is... Wait, wait, I need you to repeat that for me. Temple ruins on Mount Gerizim, which would be the temple site for the Samaritans. As in, their temple seems to be as old as any temple built in Jerusalem. Not only that, but the Samaritans have who they don't they do not like to be called Samaritans because that is an Assyrian conqueror name, the same way that they use as proof that the Jews are not the true people, because Jew comes from Judah, another Assyrian invader name. Samaritans, their religion is really called the keepers, because they are the keepers of traditions. As more and more textual scholars have begun actually excavating and reading Samaritan documents, we have found that. They think that they're the 10 tribes and pretty much their lineage goes back to the second century BCE relatively faithfully. For example, the last son of Aaron, the last son of Eleazar, so the last descendant of Eleazar, only died in 1624 CE. And they know that. The last descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, according to the Samaritans, died in 1968. They still trace the lineage of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Levi. I feel like someone in 1968 should have like, this is important. We'll just get married. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like you and you don't like me, but (laughs) I'll take one for the team. (laughs) So, So when you're reading that Assyria resettles Samaria and keep everything else in mind and keep in mind that it seems that there were at least two temples. One of them on Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans were, and one that was eventually built in Jerusalem. But seems like maybe this whole thing about Jerusalem being the center may have been a retrojection from later times, that the true Temple Mount might actually be more recent than they're thinking. And actually, it turns out that in the Persian period, there was a third temple in Elephantine in Egypt and that a community of diasporic Jews had their temple hurt and they wrote letters that are preserved today to the Persian-led Jews in Jerusalem and to the Samaritan-led Israelite tribes in Samaria requesting funds to help them take care of their temple in Egypt. Hmm. So they all knew about each other and were fine with each other. That is correct, which is another evidence that the Deuteronomist 
And at times they were willing to cooperate, whether they were sometimes antagonistic or resentful or whatever, but they were willing to cooperate because those funds were sent. (laughs) So this, and this is only what we know about. Too much. It's too much. It is, a lot, it is a lot to keep track too of. Too much new information. It is a lot to keep track of. I feel like I'm failing the class. <laughs> took a many of history class and it's come back to bite me. So, what do we do with all this information? Take an ibuprofen. Take an ibuprofen. <laughs> Take some narcotics. I don't know. But there's a lot we can do with this. But I think one of the things that we need to take away immediately is that the Deuteronomist account. It's just propaganda, yeah. deeply propaganda. I'll say it, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that it's that, <laughs> and that there it's... might be children. This we didn't put a disclaimer. <laughs> what what words can we use to uh, get our mature rating? I don't. I think I think I think bullshit is maybe not pushing us over the edge, but who knows? But it's complicated, and it seems like the Deuteronomist is coming from a perspective where it is trying to enforce its version of Israel. And what we are reading through all of the Deuteronomist, which, remember, stretches back as far as Taylor. <laughs> I don't remember, Andrew. Help me out. Deuteronomy and Joshua. Oh, you mean in the text? I thought oh, you were yeah. here. Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah. I could have I told you that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and these are the places where we actually get the entire account of them coming into the land, which we've established archaeologically, there's not only proof that that didn't, that there's no proof it happened, but there's counter proof it didn't happen. Yeah. So not only did the Deuteronomist give us the entire account of Joshua's invasion and set up Jerusalem, despite some major caveats, because they kept having to acknowledge that it was held by other people for enormous stretches of, of this time period. It seems like maybe it was never the center that it was supposed to be, that the Deuteronomist wants it to be. Because in the Persian period, we find that diasporic, not Judaism, but Israelism is widespread and diverse, sort of like early Christianity being widespread and diverse, until certain people take large measures to reduce that history into an acceptable standard. I'm going to ask you a question that you can't answer, but I have to ask it anyway. (laughs) So. We have discussed over the course of however long we've been here. It feels like a month. Um, (laughs) I am a bad professor. No, (laughs) in like the best possible way that my brain is doing that thunk up against a wall thing where my brain's like, we need to come back next class period and reread our textbook because we missed that chapter. (laughs) But so we have established over the course of this episode that the Deuteronomist was probably a whack job who worked in the basement and didn't have access to the good books or the good writers. Or that they're state for Persia writers. That they're that, that they're pro-Persia. So But they're certainly not using whatever might be available in Samaria. They're not using what might be available in Egypt. They are using, because Persia and Egypt are antagonistic, Yeah, that they're using a very limited set of documents and kind of having to thread a needle because whoever's being returned is now a ruling class and they've been returned to a land where it seems like most of the people probably don't want them there. So now I have two questions. But the first question is, what, what do we assume happened to the good books? Well, we assume that like most books from this time period. So first of all, this book would not be from this time period, right? This would be a book that was passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down. We know that we reach a point in reconstituted Judea Mm -hmm. where most people don't speak Hebrew, where their language is not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there has to be a project to relearn Hebrew and to find more people to go out and speak to the old dudes who know some Hebrew. So even this is a long passed down text. So whatever text existed was probably passed down in other traditions. For instance, the Samaritans, the keepers, or that you have a community in Elephantine in Egypt, and it's trying to pass stuff along. Well, it didn't survive to the modern day. 
So those books are gone. Most of the books are gone. Even in here, when it says like the annals of the king of so-and-so, those books are gone. Yeah. Most documentary evidence is gone. So probably any counter narrative is gone. Now we actually do have a counter narrative. It's called Chronicles. And Chronicles is a lot kinder to Israel than Kings. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be totally nice. There is an account though in Chronicles where, for instance, after the sacking of the North, they reach out and they say, hey, why don't we have a Passover together? And all the people from the North and all the people from the South come together and have a Passover. Now it's still super passive aggressive. Because in the Chronicles account, the author is going to be like that the high priest gets up and he's like, when he's giving the blessing on the meal, he's like, and we're so sorry, God, that these filthy northerners who are not observant can't do their own sacrifices. So we have to do it for them. But you know what? We're so glad they're here, even though they like put their hairy feet on the table and, you know, just (laughs) crazy smelly. Like it's just really passive aggressive. But it is still a counter narrative that shows that Judah was in contact with and discussing things with Israel post-collapse. So it is a counter-narrative. Now, it's still going to be informed by the Deuteronomist, but it's not going to be nearly as harsh. Okay. It's going to at least extend an olive branch, even if it's kind of punky about it. Yeah. Isaiah and Jeremiah are kind of counter-narratives too, aren't they? Not so much about Israel, but about like why things fell apart. They have different ideas about what caused the fall. and Yeah. So you might you might notice, for instance, that chapter 16, when we're talking about alliances, that if you jump over to Isaiah chapter 7, it's that conversation yeah. with Isaiah being like, no, don't ally with Assyria or Egypt. Just, you know, we must be pure. And that's a to- you're right. That's a different narrative than the Deuteronomist has, where Deuteronomy seems to be pretty much OK with like being a vassal. Yeah. In fact, it always seems to go poorly when the vassals rebel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deuteronomy is a bit hostile to kings. Yeah. So self-rule didn't work out. So, you know what? Maybe vassalage with Persia is okay. Isaiah doesn't agree. Yeah. So you're, there are counter-narratives. But if there were a major counter-narrative book, like the, the true book of kings, that would likely have been degraded and lost. Okay. As this rose to prominence in part. When you say the true book of kings, I mean, <clears throat> my sense, correct me if I'm wrong, my sense is that Everyone who was doing history was doing this kind of history. Yes. So it's not like if we there would it's not likely we would find some book that was accurate. It would just be another book that was its own kind of propaganda, making its own kind of argument for whatever people in power it was being written for. Does that seem accurate? Yes, and I, and I, I will clarify. I'm meaning it only tongue in cheek. Yeah. Like for instance, the Samaritans in the north do not have the benefit of a lavish sponsor. In the form of Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus is going to be the one who's going to fund the rebuilding of the temple. Yeah. The the people in what constitutes the ruins of Israel, who are pretty much just there, they're just vassals paying their tribute to Assyria or whoever is now their overlord. Probably for 90% of them, nothing changed. That there was a brief administrative hiccup, and then they paid tribute to someone else. That's how it always works for for people of the land, right? Yeah. Um yeah. You're a peasant, you farm, you, <laughs> you sell your stuff, you give most of it to the king. Uh, it doesn't really matter who the king is. Mm-hmm. But for the ruling class who seem to be the Samaritans, they just don't have the benefit of a super rich guy releasing them because he wants to create a stable vassal. So that's likely what's happening there. So we've, <clears throat> me, I have been mocking the king's author for keeping on referring to because being like this king gets overthrown by God because he wasn't as righteous as David. And then I scoff in my head because I have read the David narrative. And so our, our person who's writing the king's narrative, is there a possibility that because they were the crazy dude trapped in the basement and, or writing this in Persia from like stuff that <laughs> drunk tourists yeah. told them that they don't actually, they hadn't read the David books. So like David was great. He was righteous. Yeah. So that raises a great question. Like what is the order of composition? Like could Kings have been written earlier with more incomplete sources than Samuel? Absolutely. It could have been. 
We know it's not written as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we know that they're both working from mm-hmm. largely oral sources and or fragments and stitching them together. But Samuel has that undeniable artistry to it. Yeah. Then we get here in Kings and you're just kind of like, well, you're kind of a boring author and like problems really show up a lot. Someone's now, phoning it in. Yeah. Problems showed up in Samuel, but they tended to be remediated better. So we don't know that. But were there incomplete sources? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this here here we have an incomplete source. I mean, the things being handed to us aren't great sources. Um, so, sure, possible. Fascinating. <laughs> so let me see if I can just kind of try to sum up the big brushstrokes here, just to see if I've kind of understood well. So, on the one hand, we have problems in the text that people have already sort of, even aside from archaeology, had already kind of started to come to this conclusion that the scattering of the ten tribes of Israel was kind of an administrative thing, not a genuine scattering of a whole people. Correct. And archaeologically, that gets backed up by Stele and, and other boasts about how many people actually got deported and it just not being the whole group. And then it seems like there was this third line that we weaved in that's also kind of archaeological slash just talking to people who are still part of this tradition where we're finding there are some really interesting counter-narratives among, like, the Samaritans. um, And then you brought up Elephantine, is that? Yeah. that, Mm -hmm. that, That sort of give us this hint of a continuity of the people of Israel that we can even find down to today, which gives us sort of another sense of, this people's clearly not fully scattered. They're still there. They're mm-hmm. still there today. And to help us understand how we get this text, then we say, okay, well then what's the motive for the Deuteronomist to write the history the way they have written it? And, and that's the piece that I'm still trying to make sure I fully fit together. And we said at least one piece of it is there may be sponsored by the Persians. And we can see some places in here where they're friendly to the Persians. They're antagonistic towards the enemies of the Persians that the Persians overthrew. Um, and they're friendly to vassalage. And maybe I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but also these are people who are in Jerusalem, so they're friendly to Jerusalem as well. And this obviously really centers Jerusalem and Judah. So so maybe, t- tell me if I'm right here, but it seems like another motive for the Deuteronomists to do this the way they have is that if these people still exist, like we're saying, they're still, whatever the Ten Tribes means, because I think way back when we talked about how that's probably a myth too, but whatever the 10 tribes means that they're still in political discourse with that group. Yes. And so there's, there's a motivation here, not only to please the Persians, but also to throw the other groups under the bus. Yes. Right. And, and so you can kind of, they're, they're centering themselves and they're doing it in a way that the Persians like, so they can get away with it. And, um, and that's how we get the narrative as it comes down to us today. Yeah. Okay. The one last question helped me tie this all off. You mentioned um, ruins of a temple on Gerizim going back to five hundred something, the fifth century, the fifth BC. century BCE. Yes. How how old are they uh, in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? How old? How ancient do we think those ruins are? Well, the the thing is, is that we have ruins and remnants of second temple. Yeah, we don't have proof of Solomon's temple. Okay, so there's no actual archaeological evidence for Solomon's temple. No. Interesting. That's an assumption. Yeah. Now, it's an assumption with the weight of thousands of years of tradition. Yeah. Which I don't want to discount. And in fact, I want to put a little bit of a personal bow on this that may help reconcile that a little bit. That I think that one of the things we should take out of this is that the important thing, whenever we're studying texts like this, and as you may know, my background is in the study of Christianity and specifically the way that Christian identity is formed and, and discussed and metered and all of those sort of things. The important thing to this author is the same thing that's important to authors such as Joseph Smith or authors such as a, a medieval crusader who has very particular ideas about finding lost tribes to help them fight against the Muslims. These are all part of the same broad texture. The important thing is not finding out what Israel was really, what it really was at some point. The important thing is becoming Israel. And everybody has their own story 
about what it means to become Israel. And these stories are necessarily very broad because you have a sense that all these stories share in them the sense that other people that are Israel are out there and maybe you can find them. But you're always in tension with the other people that say that they are becoming Israel. For Mormons, one of the big tensions is the existence of Jews. Yeah. <laughs> right? That, that Well, there they are. Now, they aren't one of the lost 10 tribes, but clearly they have a stronger tradency than Mormonism does. But so when Mormonism has this idea about gathering the tribes, it has to say, well, we are Israel and kind of have, has to work around Judaism. And at times in its history has cast aspersions at Judaism. That happens pretty much everywhere that we find people creating this notion of becoming Israel. Those crusaders, for instance, they have this notion of finding the tribes and becoming Israel, that they're going to go and find Jerusalem and the tribes will come and save them and they'll all be together. Well, and who do they ransack? They have deep pogroms against Jews. Why? Because they're real Israel. <laughs> and that creates a confrontation of identity with this idea of becoming Israel. Now, I'll even go further, though. Let's talk about Israel, the modern state. There are 800 Samaritans living in Israel. Are they citizens of Israel? Only 800? That is correct. Only 800. That's what remains of the Samaritans today. So there are 800 now, the courts of Israel have, are presented with this hard question. Are these people allowed to be citizens of Israel? Now, you might know that Israel has a right of return, right? That if you're Jewish, you can come and become a citizen of Israel. But that raises a really hard question. What does it mean to be Jewish? Yeah. For example, uh, like back in like the 60s or 70s, I think it was the 60s, there was a Carmelite monk who he had been born a Polish Jew. And he was now Brother Joseph, or whatever his name was. And he said, well, do I get to be a citizen of Israel? And Israel at that time decided, no, you don't, because by converting to another denomination, you stopped being Jewish. So the Israel court is faced with a big conundrum when it comes to Samaritans, because these are people who emphatically are not Jewish, but they are Israelite. Yeah. So can they be citizens? Now, this is in a bit of a legal limbo because you may not know this, but Israel uses a two-court system where there is a religious court and a secular court. And in times when they don't agree, the secular court supersedes the religious court. The, the religious identity of Samaritans has been disputed in Israel, and the religious court says, no, they may not count as citizens of Israel, but the secular court has said they can which means legally they can, but that there is still legal dispute overall whether they can actually qualify as citizens. But this shows that even the modern state of Israel, which is clearly interested in the notion of becoming Israel, yeah. is asking questions right now, legal questions, scriptural questions, doctrinal questions, DNA questions, biological questions about what it means to be becoming Israel. This has relevance right now in the real world. <laughs> and I think it's important for us to look at this and recognize that this, the search for what was original, what was Israel really, we will never find it because it doesn't matter. It didn't matter to the Deuteronomist. They are writing this to establish what becoming Israel means. And they are saying, we are the ones who inherit Israel and those people do not. And that's a process that we see every time we have the discussion about becoming Israel. This is actually the first time in hundreds of years that the Samaritans are growing. Oh, good. There are now communities. There's two main communities of Samaritans. There's one at Mount Gerizim. There's another outside of Tel Aviv. But now there are converts in Africa and Brazil to Samaritanism. Okay. Or rather to Keeperism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although their website is like the United Samaritan Church dot com or whatever though front page they're like don't call us samaritan but <laughs> that's how you get there <laughs> like how i still type in so but so i hope that's illuminating but i i really do hope that we can approach the text with that 
that you know we can we can question motives and all of that but i think what we're really seeing is an author trying to define what the covenant is what israel is in part by necessarily excluding people yeah well i think it speaks even more broadly to and it's it's fascinating how i think it's really worth pointing out as you have how how often israel specifically plays into this but i i think it it's part of a broader sort of human desire that we have to show that our cell, like our own, our own actions, our own institutions are continuations of something much with much deeper roots than what we can see. And, and I, it's so it's, it's, it just seems like we're all, we're often very willing to twist the past to make it fit the present so that we can claim that connection. And as you've pointed out, the how often it is that it's Israel that we're twisting to make that happen is really fascinating. So now that we've how much more do we have? Oh my goodness. Now that we've made it through what? Three like chapters. Four out of like, four out of twelve, 12 chapters. chapters. Should we should we move back to Judah? <laughs> I mean the rest of this should be pretty quick. Yeah, I think so too. So we have Hezekiah, the story of Hezekiah now. Okay, but I do want to know what does the archaeology does the archaeology have much? What do, what do we know about Assyria and Judah? There's obvious the text gives us gives us plenty of interaction there, right? So, and and it's really it's it, it cracks me up um, how contradictory it is. So if you look at chapter 18, right at the beginning, when we're sort of meeting Hezekiah. Um, he did what was right. He was like David. He removed the high places. So this is a break, right? The other ones haven't removed the high places. Now Hezekiah does remove the high places. Um, trust in the Lord God of Israel. No one like him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So that's verse 7. Would not serve him. And in 10... No, let's see. Where am I? Let's see. In verse 15... Hezekiah gives to Assyria all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. So, so you get introduced to him as like, he's going to, because of his trust in God, he's not going to be a servant to Assyria. But then a few verses later, he's paying tribute. But do we have a sense of archaeologically what the relationship was between Assyria and Judah? Does that show up anywhere? I mean, I, 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 I get the sense that what we're seeing here is pretty accurate, that Assyria was throwing its weight around it's going to get wiped out by Babylon too. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, yeah, uh, Judah, despite the big words from, you know, praising Hezekiah, he isn't really able to preserve them from at least the predations of Assyria. Yeah. Yeah. So on some level, he's a vassal. Or, or, or least, just or a tributary. A tributary. Yeah. 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 And yet somehow manages to run afoul of Syria, of Assyria. And we get this narrative about the siege where Rabshakeh gives these speeches basically saying, you know, where are the gods of all these other places we've conquered? And we get this sort of dramatic narrative where both Hezekiah and Isaiah basically like bring this challenge to God. Mm -hmm. And so God wipes out the army. It's an interesting story. Yeah, and so one of the when we're getting these kings, right? So we've had uh, Tiglath Pileser, and we've had Sargon, and now we're getting Sennacherib. And to be honest, when we get accounts from Assyria of them conquering Israel, it's clearly a relatively minor accomplishment. Yeah, mm. this is a frontier. That yeah, they're kind of there. They're annoying. They've been taking border towns, <laughs> um, trying to expand back to the ex- northern extent of Solomon's empire. But then they go in and wipe them out. And so it doesn't seem like this part really has much credence to it. That if Sennacherib and notice actually, one of the things that's uh, so he does he does actually campaign um, historically into Judah. But in here, it's going to connect his failed campaign with his assassination but they're 20 years apart. So I don't know if that's really connected, you know, like I did things 20 years ago that I wouldn't connect to things I do now. <laughs> um, 
also like it is his chosen heir who ends up on the throne. So it seems like even though he's assassinated, like whatever regal shenanigans are going to happen there, it kind of shakes out. Yeah. So, so this is clearly the narrator being like, Oh, we're so important. And they came down here, but, and the Lord wiped out the army and it's true. Sinatra marched down and then marched back up. It seems like he was called away for important things. And then 20 years later was assassinated. And that those two things probably didn't have anything to do with one another. But that is interesting, though, that there is, there is at least a collaborate. There is he did have a he marched to Jerus, Judah and didn't stay there. That Correct. Is, oh, okay, interesting. So it's maybe telling a somewhat true story, and there maybe was enormous relief when he left, even if it wasn't because he got driven out by an angel. Yeah, by an angel. But 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 there's maybe there is maybe a memory of that relief that this is like you said playing into. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Or at least with retrospect. Yeah. I mean, so way back in 17, there's a clue about when this is probably being written. So 17 talking about the collapse of Israel. But in verse 19, it points, it has kind of this insertion where Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. So it's being written by someone who knows that the fate of Judah will mirror the fate of Israel. So it's being written at least a century later during the exile. So, I mean, that's a heck of a lot of hindsight to be able to pl- play into Sennacherib, you know, leaving. And then S.R. Haddon being his successor. And you're like, oh, see, it's because he was deposed because of his failure here because of the Lord. Well, if you're writing, you know, 80 years later. Yeah. I Yeah. The 20 years could maybe slip yeah. by you. Yeah. <clears throat> So then we get speaking of foreshadowing of the of uh, what's about to happen to Judah in chapter twenty. Hezekiah gets sick. He thinks he's told he's going to die. He prays that he won't die. He is healed and uh, ends up meeting some Babylonians. I thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> uh, and Isaiah gives this prophecy that um, they're going to eventually conquer Judah. And then we kind of start moving through kings again. So we get Manasseh, who the Deuteronomist clearly does not like. The prophets come and in like verse, so we're in 21 now. In, and I liked the, uh, the analogy here in verse 13. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So obviously not thrilled with uh, Jerusalem at this point. Um, the next king, Ammon, is that how you say it? Or am I just being Mormon? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Or Amon. <laughs> yeah. Either way. Continues Manasseh's policies, and now we start getting coups again. And then we get Josiah. And we've kind of talked a bunch about Josiah already. Um, but we should talk about Hulda, though. Yeah, let's talk about Hulda. Mostly just because she's a prophetess. And apparently the final authority on scripture. Yeah, you know, I, I read this and I see, so we have this period of incredible influx of northern people. We've talked about how Yahwism is a northern tradition originally. Yeah. Holda lives in the second quarter. Suggesting that she's from the north. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that would make sense. So she's yeah. randomly the authority on these texts. Josiah himself is a puppet king. I actually get the sense that this is sort of the moment that the Northern Yahwists kind of take over the kingdom. That they, they don't like Manasseh and Amon. Maybe they're too Southern. Maybe they're too Judahite. So these people have come in. Jerusalem has grown five times its size. That's a lot of people who aren't original inhabitants. Yeah. So we have this kind of puppet king. We have Hilkiah who just sort of finds this record. Yeah. Holda, <laughs> who's in the second quarter, verifies it. I mean, there's just, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying there's a lot of suspicious little trailing threads in here. <clears throat> David was on the other side of the country at the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just happy to see a woman. <laughs> yeah. A named woman who's not like a random whore who, like, Jezebel. Yeah, she's a, everyone to wickedness. She's a, I mean, you either got to treat her as a prophetess or a scriptural expert, or I mean, or both. Yeah, and she is considered a prophetess in yeah. tradition, her and Deborah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you get two. <laughs> you know. So then we have this celebration of Passover. You mentioned in Chronicles there is a pa- is this potentially connected to that? I like another version of it. Actually, that's an interesting way to think about it. This sort of after the sacking of Israel, this sort of some degree of reconciliation between like the refugees and the Judahites that maybe eventually turns into the Deuteronomist, but I kind of like the idea of them like coming together to celebrate something that maybe they've changed it. I mean, you mentioned in Chronicles the way like the Southern kingdoms all annoyed about all the bad ways that they go about it, but they still have enough of a shared sense of something that they can celebrate it together. Um, Josiah gets killed by an Egyptian Pharaoh and things wrap up pretty quickly after that. We do pretty much have a good idea about what happened there. Oh, really? Yeah, that Pharaoh Necho was actually, that he was probably going north to fight Assyria because he was like, you guys are getting too big for your britches. And he goes through the crossroads of the Near East. And this this king, who has recently been vassalized to Assyria, is like, no, you can't fight my overlord, and goes out and gets totally (laughs) wiped out by King Necho. And then there's a couple more puppets, and Zedekiah, the puppet, rebels, and so Judah gets completely destroyed. In periods, right? Like, it does It does clarify that there are stages to the deportations. If you read closely, you can line this up kind of with, like, the the material history that we find archaeologically. So just generally the dates, like, so remember, it was 722 was the fall of of uh, Samaria, Israel. Now you're going to get like the Battle of uh, Carchemish in 605 BCE is when Nebuchadnezzar beats Egypt. Hmm. So kind of exerts final authority over this area. In 604 through 602 BCE, Judah is vassalized. In 601 through 600 BCE, Babylon is kind of beaten back by Egypt which gives them some breathing room, which would explain why Jehoiakim is like, maybe it's time to rebel. Yeah. But then they rebound really quickly. Um, and so the first deportation in 597, and then you've got Zedekiah in 592 and the invasion of uh, Pharaoh Somaticus. And so he kind of, he, you get this waffling between like, Oh, which kingdom should I curry favor with? But it won't matter because by 587, we have the siege of Jerusalem and in 586, the second deportations. So about 11 years after the first ones. So these are fairly verifiable just because we have bigger kingdoms talking about them. Yeah. And it seems like Judah just is kind of the hockey puck that's being passed around. They, they're not that important. Yeah. Compared to everyone Other else. Other than that they're at a crossroads. So that yeah. makes it so that despite not being big or a huge problem, they have to be dealt with constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating episode <laughs> of the Third Hour Podcast. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I'm like sweating. <laughs> you had to do a lot of work in this one. You did. <laughs> we hope you'll join us next week. Reread all of Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> next year. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. This was the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at the thirdhourpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.